Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today's sports journalist Scott Morrison joins me to talk about his 1972, the series that changed hockey. A look back at the war on ice between Canada and the Soviet Union as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series. We find out how scientists in Britain have debunked a long-held myth that the country's early medieval rulers regularly feasted on meat. Turns out they had much more of a vegetarian diet. We find out how they found out. We head to India to learn more about an early and sizzling heat wave that swept across the country in what was the hottest April on record. But first, with a lot more of us traveling again, major airports, including in Toronto and Vancouver, are seeing long waits for passenger screening. What's behind the problem? And could those responsible have done more to prevent it? First, as more and more of us are starting to travel again, the headaches of traveling are back. Heading to the airport, there's warnings about delays at passenger screening at major airports, including in Toronto and in Vancouver. The Greater Toronto Airport Authority warned passengers to, quote, pack their patients. Well, Vancouver's airport issued an advisory saying passengers flying uh, are told to come early. Make sure you're ready for delays. Here's what some passengers were saying when they got there recently. They were still shocked. This is insane. I, I, I travel all the time out here to see my grandkids. We stay 10 days. We spend lots of money. We come to the airport on time as requested. And then we line up for a zillion miles. Why? Because somebody can't hire somebody? It's crazy. Very long line. They say about 40 minutes wait, but it looks like more than that. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a little frustrating. Wasn't expecting it to be at all like this. <laughs> they say it's a staffing issue? I don't know. <laughs> Well, there you go. People still surprised at the lines. You know, welcome back to traveling. Uh, the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority, which is the federal crown corporation responsible for all passenger security screening, is experiencing ongoing staffing shortages. Well, we wanted to find out more. So Teamsters Canada represents a thousand of those security screeners across the country, all of them that you'll run into at the airport. And joining me now is Catherine Cosgrove. She's the Director of Communications and Public Affairs at Teamsters Canada. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Ben. So what are we witnessing at uh, at major airports in terms of screening delays? What's the problem? I would say the, the issues that we're seeing at airports across the country, or most of them, are with regards to a lack of planning, resource planning. Um, from People were not ready for what was about to come, and uh, we uh, approached the Canadian airport Transportation Security Authority um, to ask CATSA um, to ask them halfway through the pandemic when we started to see that things would be picking up again, say, hey, shouldn't you be hiring some more staff? We're going to get busy again. And we'd like some training so that uh, our members can fully carry out the different responsibilities that they need training for. And there was little response. And uh, so now what we're seeing is just an afflux of people who are starting to travel again and not enough people available to do the screening. So what happened was, although they didn't lay people off during the pandemic, they didn't hire to replace any people who were leaving. And there were for many different reasons. Um, and so now we're faced with with the result of it. And, and this level of 
understaffing is one that we see in a lot of service sectors, uh, but in airports in particular, it ref- it's reflected in the screening agents. It's reflected in um, the more senior people who can give training to onboard people within these um, screening authorities. It's uh, people who give credentials. Once you get security checks, the, the airport authority needs to give credentials. The people who staff and give the credentials out aren't as available. So there's a backup there. And um, so there's, it's, it's across the board pretty much. And training a new person takes about six weeks uh, plus your security screening from the, from the um, Transport Canada. So it's, it's not something that can be fixed um, with a, a Band-Aid. What are you hearing from, from your membership uh, in, in that specific space? Uh, are they frustrated by, by, because they are on the front lines of this, of course. They are frustrated. They're uh, tired. There's a lot of workplace fatigue. I mean, we're, we all talk about it. We all feel it with the pandemic. Um, but in their line of work, because of the understaffing, they're also working through breaks. Um, they, in some provinces where mandatory overtime is mandatory, they actually ha- get 30 minutes notice and find out that they have to keep going um, for another full shift. Um, and that's something that's not very attractive as a workplace. And even if they do have or used to have relatively good salaries with benefits, um, once you're being pushed to the limit as you are in terms of long working hours, uh, you start looking around. And there are other a lot of other employers that are paying good money and with better working conditions. And what we're seeing is, is a result of it. So what's your sense of, of what's happened here? You mentioned, of course, that they, there, were, there was no hiring. Are you also seeing people leaving? Are you seeing sort of a, an attrition or people not wanting to apply to come in? So we have seen an attrition rate of about 10 to 30 percent, depending on the locations, uh, which is fairly significant, frankly. That's 30 percent is massive if you're trying to replace those people. That's that's huge. It certainly is. And what happens is that, you know, as with any form of attrition, you lose all sorts of employees. And sometimes you lose the more experienced ones who are the ones who are able to provide training and resources and guidance and um, stability um, to the teams themselves. Um, so it's it's unfortunately it's a ripple effect that just keeps compounding itself. You mentioned it earlier, but if you could walk me through it a bit, to bring in a new screening agent, you, you need a whole system in place. And, you, and what you're saying is that that system has been depleted from, from top to bottom. It has. So on one hand, a uh, screener would normally go through a six-week training. Um, so they're paid, for example, they could be paid $21 an hour while, while they go through six weeks of training. Upon completing their training and um, being certified, they, their salary would go up to $24. Um, and so they complete the training, but they also need to get, um, so we need trainers who, who may be missing. We also need a security clearance from the government um, who looks, there's, there's a background check, but there's also a, an actual security clearance from Transport Canada. Now, the applications for these um, security clearances are given by um, the airport authority. Transport Canada does the actual background checks. We're missing staff at those levels as well. Um, so a background check can take anywhere between one month and six months. Um, depending on, you know, the person's history, if they've traveled, if they have family abroad, 
whole gamut of circumstances. Um, so you really are faced with, you know, delays and more delays. And in the same way, once you are at the airport, for example, um, passengers face this compounded um, aspect where they walk, they go to the counter and they wait at the airline's counter. Well, the airline had laid off their staff. They didn't even keep them on. They laid them off and they wait and lane on the ticket counter because they haven't been able to, to hire back efficiently yet. And then um, so they've waited longer, which creates a bottleneck by the time they get to security. Everyone's trying to get on a rush flight that are all leaving at the same time. And they're going through the screening. And, you know, we all have a bit of brain fog as well with the pandemic. I am guilty of having left a bottle of water in my bag. And I went through screening, yes, at Toronto Airport last week. And I did it. Um, I left the bottle of water in there and, you know, was extremely horrified when the screener took it out and said, you have a bottle of water in here. And I knew I wasn't supposed to, but I I just, you know, chalk it up to not having traveled for two and a half years and having been kind of zoned out like we all are with the pandemic these days. Did you find the same weights? Were you you surprised at how long you had to wait to go through screening? It actually was pretty swift, which is, you know, on the other hand, why I do encourage people to just look at the wait times. It is a good, uh, it is a good indicator. Uh, I was extremely lucky going back and forth. Um, I have a colleague, however, to come to Toronto this week, uh, waited two and a half hours in line at the Vancouver airport um, go, to go through screening. So it, it's, it's a challenge, uh, which I understand. Um, at a lot of the second tier airports, though, the smaller airports, We're not feeling that type of of crunch, but um, there are still issues with regards to overtime, to fatigue, um, and um, there will be issues as we begin to ramp up more travel. The difference is a lot of the smaller airports haven't picked up their their travel levels yet. I'm speaking with Catherine Cosgrove, Director of Communications and Public Affairs for Teamsters Canada. We're talking about long delays at airports these days to go through screening. Uh, We've been talking about why that is. Catherine's mentioned that uh, there were warnings given to CATSA uh, midway through the pandemic to ramp up, to be ready for when people started to travel again. Uh, But instead, there has been uh, not the kind of hiring or at least the kind of training and hiring that might be expected knowing this was coming. After this, we'll talk a bit more about what needs to be done to try to see if we can't bring these lines down. Down, these wait times down uh, in the near future because it will have a ripple effect across the travel industry. Suddenly, people who are looking forward to traveling again suddenly see long lines at airports and worry about what that might mean. I will be back with that. Speaking with Catherine Cosgrove, Director of Communications and Public Affairs at Teamsters Canada, but long waits these days. Teamsters, of course, represents uh, airport screeners, amongst others. Uh, but long waits at airports these days to get through screening. Part of the problem, of course, is understaffing. Uh, an attrition rate, Catherine was mentioning earlier, between 10 and 30% at some airports, um, which is huge. And how do you attract people back? Because they're desperately needed. So that must be, there is the, the, you know, the long wait question, Catherine. What needs to be done now? to try to see if we can't reduce these wait times and get more staff so that staff aren't working as much and there's more of them? Well, certainly, uh, I, I believe at this stage, uh, Ben, a lot of the the, um, the first 
uh, armor that we're going to need as patients because <laughs> none of right. these problems are going to be solved um, from one day to the next. Um, certainly what we need to see is um, some more collaboration uh, between uh, the uh, employer, um, CATSA, and uh, employees, ensuring that at least the employees that are there feel valued and welcomed for the work that they offer. Uh, they were essential workers. Um, even if there wasn't much travel, they did keep the borders, uh, did keep the, the airports open during the pandemic. And um, they need breaks like everyone else. And, and certainly being able to offer basic conditions are one option. Uh, I can't go so far as to say what the solution that the employer uh, will bring to the table. I know that there's a lot of um, segmenting in the work and the way that the qualifications are offered um, for specific segments. So you have to reach a certain number of points um, or, or credits of, of training per month or done a certain amount of, um, of type of work. So there's, there are silos within the organization of work. I'm not saying that that's the solution, um, but I'm just saying that that's, that's one area um, that, that certainly is, is clearly causes issue. Uh, another one may be even just um, the type of um, reprimands that are given. If someone misses an object going through, and we know that that is their first duty, um, but is it normal that they be taken off the job and moved to an administrative function, just um, checking the boarding passes um, for a month and instead of being able to do something else that would be more valuable to the overall, uh, comp- to the overall team and, and effort that's being made. Is that still happening in your, as far as you know, Catherine? Are people still being reprimanded that way, even though there's short staff? I mean, obviously security. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So this is something that uh, I was speaking to a representative today, and this is something that's still occurring at this very moment where, you know, as a um, reprimand for for having missed an object, which can happen, there's still, um, they're still coming up with archaic solutions in terms of, um, indicating that the person did not quite meet the the um, the level of, of performance that was expected. And maybe there's different forms of, of arranging things so that the person can still contribute. Are you satisfied now that there's been so much attention paid to this problem? Are, are you satisfied that things are in motion to change things or are you still seeing more of the same? Are you being listened to in other words? Well, there certainly is pressure uh, on CATSA to act, and I, I think that it's it's a good pressure. It can be a very good thing. Um, the question is, um, will there be a tendency to put a Band-Aid on the solutions and say it's fixed until there's further pressure, and then you have a... Um, water main leak that's, that's a lot more significant than, than a Band-Aid can fix. Um, so I, I'm, my one concern is that um, some of the more medium-term solutions that could be brought to the table and that will help um, truly make this a better place to work and more efficient um, for everyone are, are not may not be considered right away because they do not bring the dividends that that are kind of flashy and and shiny and and always nice to announce in press conferences such as for example what 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 do those look like i mean i've seen those press conferences but what do they look like um uh, they could 
you know, indicate that they were going to give a, a, a spree of hiring bonuses, for example. I mean, that that's great. Don't get me wrong. I don't can't blame anyone for accepting a hiring bonus, but we've seen this in other industries because um, this isn't the only industry facing labor shortages right now. Um, so one 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 proposal that we've seen come around quite often lately is, oh, we'll give you a signing bonus if you stay with us for X amount of time, um, which is fine, but it doesn't, you know, it won't solve the problem. But maybe it'll get the media out of the, out of your way for for a few months until something else goes wrong. Catherine Cosgrove, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Uh, as I was mentioning throughout the show, it's the 50th anniversary of perhaps the most important sporting event in Canadian history coming up. Uh, it was September 2nd, 1972, that the very first game of that summit series between Team Canada and the USSR took place in front of a packed and very warm Montreal Forum. There's the Montreal Forum again. A rude awakening it was for Canada in the battle for world hockey supremacy, a loss in the first of eight games, four here in Canada. Four more back in the Soviet Union. It ended in Vancouver with another loss, leaving the record at one win, two losses, and a tie heading to Moscow. Fans were not pleased. Phil Esposito famously spoke about that after the game in Vancouver. For the people across Canada, we tried. We did our best. And uh, for the people that boo us, geez, I, I'm really, I, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed in some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got. Uh, the, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. Phil Esposito after that loss in Vancouver. Well, they would turn things around, of course, in Moscow, famously. Uh, Foster Hewitt would famously call the comeback and the goal that won it all, Paul Henderson, late in Game 8. Martin Y.A. has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for it and fell. Here's another shot right by the door. I wasn't even there. I still get shivers listening to that. Um, wasn't didn't even watch it. Well, the series and the 50th anniversary is the subject of a new book. Joining me now is Scott Morrison, sports journalist and author of the newly released 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Scott, it was a fascinating book. You've covered hockey for a very long time. What was the inspiration for writing about the Summit series? Well, I, I, I wrote I wrote a book uh, leading up to. The, the 20th anniversary and uh, you know this obviously being 50 years and none of us are getting any younger sort of a final time uh, maybe to tap into everybody involved and <clears throat> relive the, the moments and uh, get their insights and perspectives about <clears throat> just how special that series was because it's a it's a historical moment for not just hockey but our country I mean it was a time that brought us all together and united the country. It's, um, you know, there's a series, especially the last one of where you were moments, uh, a time when our country stood still. So uh, just uh, making sure the memory of that series lives on and uh, lives on for a, another generation or two is, uh, I think, important too, because we need to need to keep, uh, keep it alive and, and appreciate what happened back in the day uh, and the influence it had on our lives and, uh, and our game. I mean, I grew up in the seventies. I was too young to watch or remember the 72 summit series, but I would hear the stories of, you know, school classrooms with TVs in them, everyone stopping to watch certainly game eight, the final game watching Henderson score. Where were you? Do you remember where you were when Paul Henderson scored that goal? Yeah, I was, uh, 
just about to turn 14 and uh, I stayed home for one of the Moscow games was a Sunday and then I stayed home from school for the other three. <laughs> My parents allowed me to do that. But, you know, the title, title, subtitle of this book is the series that changed hockey forever, which it did. And the, the first book was the days that Canada stood still because we did. I mean, you know, the schools, they were wheeling in TVs into gymnasiums and putting kids in there. Kids were allowed to have, uh, you know, transistor radios in their pocket and listen to the broadcast. Uh, people stayed away from work. I, know, I remember seeing pictures and films of, you know, people on a sidewalk outside a, an electronic store where they'd have all the TVs in the window with the game on and there'd be packs of people standing there watching the games, yelling and screaming and cheering. And, you know, two thirds of our population uh, watched those final games. I mean, it's just an amazing number. So we were, we were absolutely um, just taken down by this. I mean, we just, uh, we stopped, we came to a standstill and embraced every moment of it. When you look back at the history of it now, um, did you, do you have a different perspective of why it was so monumental than you, when, when you did 20 years ago? I remember growing up, it just was. You just said 72 Summit Series, and you didn't have to explain. But now when you think about how everyone would, might be watching those same games by themselves on their phones, you know, it wouldn't be quite the same unifying event, perhaps, although 2010 was. Um, but when you look back now, do you have any different take on, on why it was so monumental? Well, I think it was for a number of reasons. From a hockey perspective, obviously, uh, you know, it was the first time that our best players played uh, their best players, so-called amateurs, which they weren't. But, you know, it was the first time it was best on best that we had always been sending amateur teams to play against them in the Worlds and the Olympics. And, and after the 60s, we weren't winning very much and that was a big impetus by behind having this series and so the impact that it had on the hockey world after that it opened up the doors to you know all of a sudden we had Canada Cups and then you you had pros at the Olympics and you have all the European players playing in the NHL so it had a profound influence from that perspective and you know even for the Soviets losing the a big impetus of that series is they were dominating international hockey and they wanted a new challenge just to see where they stood on a bigger stage. And so it was a win for them from that perspective and a win for us for ultimately prevailing. But what made it special too is that the dynamic behind it, that you know, the world was a, a, a little different at that time because of the, the political times that, uh, you know, it was communism versus capitalism. It was, you know, West versus East. It was freedom versus oppression. It was the Cold War was going on in the world. And the Russians, the Soviets were just a, a black and white, uh, scary image on the, the nightly news that we were worried about because of the, the chance of, of politics and wars and all of that. And, uh, and all of that kind of emotion played into uh, the series, the, what the players were feeling, that they weren't just playing for, the, for, a, for a hockey championship, that they were they're playing to defend their way of life. I mean, you don't like to diminish the, the word war, but they called it a war. That's how it felt to them, that they were defending the country on many levels from what we believed in politically and how we lived to you know, how we played the game on top of it. 
I always remember my father telling me that when the Soviets first showed up, everyone sort of laughed at the way, you know, their bad equipment and thought, we're going to, we're, we're going to win this in eight. Like we're going to win all eight of these games. And then there's that, those famous interviews with Esposito, who wrote the forward to your book, when the Canadian fans started booing them for losing. How, how devastating were those first or how much of an awakening were those first few games and how the series ultimately played out? Well, I think uh, virtually everybody, and there was a few people like uh, Brian Conacher and the late Billy Harris, who had been involved in international ventures, who were cautioning people not to underestimate the Soviets uh, prior to the series, but everybody else were believing that, you know, it's where the NHL was and uh, we'll walk over them in this series. It's going to be a lark. It's going to be like an all-star festival and, uh, you know, everybody's going to play, everybody's going to have fun. And that was pretty much the attitude of the Canadians going into the series. And then opening night, you lose seven to three. And it was a shocker. And it was a reality check. And by the time Vancouver, you know, there's one win, two losses and a tie. And I think the Canadian fans felt like they were betrayed, that the players were letting them down, that they weren't trying hard enough, that they, they didn't, they weren't ready to take on this on this series. And I think what Phil's speech to the fans after that loss in Vancouver with all the booing and disgruntlement was we are trying our best and we were sold a bill of goods. We were told that we were going to do, this was going to be a walkover, but these guys can play, but we're going to continue to do what we have to do. And we're going to, we're going to win this series. And I think he didn't turn the team around with that speech, but I think he turned, the Canadian public around in terms of how they viewed the team by the time they got to, to Moscow, where there's much more support with 3,000 fans over there and 10,000 telegrams and well wishes that were sent over. All of a sudden, the country realized, yeah, these guys, are they're in deep and it's not their fault. And let's try to support them to get out of it. Everyone always remembers the goal, obviously, the Paul Henderson goal. I've seen that replay a thousand times and the fact that he had scored the game-winning goal in the previous games. But you have a real special spot for Phil Esposito in this series. I absolutely do. I mean, Paul was phenomenal from start to finish in it with uh, Ron Ellis and, and Bobby Clark. And he you know, he scored the game-winner in 6-7 of the greatest goal of his career in Game 7 from a from a skill standpoint, and then obviously game eight, 34 seconds, he would have had the game winner in game five if they'd held on to the lead. They blew a lead in that one. So, yeah, Paul was the hero, but Phil was the heart and soul of the of the team. He was the, the leader, and all the players, including Paul, will tell you that, that he was their best player, and it was he just he refused. And some nights he was in that team to victory, doing whatever it took, and uh, – you know, the game eight, especially, you just look at the third period of that game and think about they're down 5-3. He scores a goal, he sets up another, and then he sets up the winner again. And it was like he'd told the guys at various times, we are not losing this series, so let's go. And, uh, you know, he led by example. And Harry Sinden, who knew him well from the Boston days, said it was the, the greatest hockey he'd ever played. I'm speaking with sports journalist Scott Morrison about his newly released book, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever on the soon-to-be 50th anniversary of the Soviet-Canada Summit Series uh, back in 1972, the famous Paul Henderson goal. After this, we'll talk a bit more just about the legacy and also some of the the darker side of the series because there were a lot of shenanigans going on on the ice and behind the scenes as well. Interesting to find out what players look back now and think of those times. Uh, That's after this.
Well, it's Wednesday night here, Thursday morning in Delhi. That's where Polash Mukherjee is. He's the lead uh, air pollution and climate resilience at the national... Um, one sec at the uh, sorry lead uh, air pollution and climate resilience at the National Resources Defense Council in India. Uh, we've been talking about this heat wave that hit the country uh, in April, one of the hottest Aprils on record, uh, not right across the country into Pakistan as well, and just what kind of impact that's having. Uh, I gather one of the big, and you mentioned this right before the break, Polash, was this idea of energy consumption because India still gets 70% of its energy uh, mixed from coal. And as you mentioned, that's something that probably needs to change at some point in the not too distant future with demand expected to increase so much and the heat uh, also expected to increase. Yeah, that's, that's right, Ben. I mean, uh, India is uh, cleaning up its, uh, its energy sources gradually. Uh, but as of right now, we remain dependent on coal. Uh, what we, are, what we are seeing with the early onset of heat this year is that uh, India's peak electricity consumption, which is increasing every year, uh, is has come in earlier. Uh, last year, the peak was in the month of June, uh, late June, in fact. And this year, we've already hit the peak in the middle of April. So what this means is more and more people are accessing uh, means of space pooling, uh, means of artificial cooling, uh, which is which you utilize a lot more uh, electricity, uh, like air conditioning, what, air conditioning, and so forth. Right, of course. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, is there an opportunity here? I mean, how? Given that we think this is a trend that is going to continue, that we're going to see earlier, hotter springs, uh, even hotter summers, uh, what can be done to try to mitigate some of the impacts that we're seeing? There's a big opportunity here in terms of uh, in terms of building out uh, uh, resilience uh, against extreme heat, uh, not just through uh, active heat management, but also through passive heat management, uh, which right. is what we're seeing through measures like uh, uh, increased building efficiency, increased uh, thermal efficiency in buildings. Uh, we are noticing now that uh, we do know for a fact that India is rapidly growing. Uh, in fact, in terms of urbanization, uh, in, in the last census, in, India had an uh, urban population of just about 35%, which is slated to increase to about 60% in the next two decades. Uh, this means that uh, close to half or, half or more of uh, the buildings that will exist in 2060 are yet to be built. So that right there is a big opportunity. Uh, there is the opportunity to, for us to build our, uh, our buildings better, uh, to have more, have more thermal efficiency inbuilt into them, uh, to have better, th better uh, energy efficiency inbuilt into them, to the new air conditions uh, uh, and the uh, appliances that we do install. Uh, if you're able to ensure that they are more uh, efficient uh, and they they operate they operate uh, better using less electricity. That is an opportunity going forward. Uh, there are also uh, big passive uh, passive cooling options that uh, we do advocate with the government, with uh, low income neighborhoods especially, especially for the vulnerable. Uh, we do install something called cool roofs. Uh, now cool right. roofs are a very low cost and uh, effective solution, I would say, uh, especially for the low-income neighborhoods that I was referring to. Uh, these are essentially right. a layer of paint, uh, or they could be an additional layer of uh, of material on the roof that will increase the reflectivity of the roof and therefore ensure that 
much more of the sunlight gets reflected back rather than absorbed by the building. It has been seen uh, that uh, cool roofs can reduce indoor temperatures by as much as four to five degrees Celsius, and therefore make a big difference. Polash, I mean, I, I get the impression, I think we, we all know this, that in countries like India, you're preparing now to live with temperatures that we didn't think we might ever see. I mean, and consistent temperatures in the mid-40s. And that's extremely warm. I remember watching something last year about life at 60, living under 60, 50 or 60 degree temperatures. Is that a reality now, do you think, um, for, for many parts of the country? Uh, well, I, I'd say 60 is uh, far away. And well, I 60, hope is, never 60 is way too high, but 50 perhaps. Yeah. 50 perhaps. Yes, I, I, I do hope that we, do, we don't have to see such high temperatures. But unfortunately, the reality is that uh, it's already here. I mean, these high temperatures are here now. And we have to safeguard ourselves against uh, such high temperatures right now. Uh, while efforts continue to, you know, to, to reverse the impacts of climate change, uh, we see that countries like India uh, have been uh, are beginning to be and have been affected by the impacts of climate change in the last couple of years. And heat waves is just one example of, of the same, right? In the last couple of years, we've seen uh, added uh, cyclones. Uh, we've seen shifting of rainfall patterns. Uh, we've seen more severe cold cold spells. So these are all related to changes in the weather patterns that are uh, impacted by climate change. Uh, so while it is important to do, to have the mitigation activities to to reduce uh, the long term impacts of climate change, uh, at NRDC we are also working with uh, communities to build up their resilience uh, to help them deal with, uh, with 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 something that's being becoming very real all around them the impacts of climate change. So. What do, what do the next what do the next few weeks what did the next few weeks look like now how warm is it today and, and how is it going to be for the rest of the week has there been any sort of reprieve from that high heat of uh, of late April? So where I am in Delhi, uh, very fortunately, and it was almost like a like a celebration yesterday. We had uh, the first spell of rainfall uh, for the season, uh, which kind of uh, reduced temperatures, uh, which was a much needed relief. Uh, so today uh, it is likely to go up to 37 degrees Celsius. Uh, but in the coming weeks, uh, the heat is expected to come back. We do know that the months of May and June are the worst in terms of uh, heat, uh, and uh, uh, so so it is important to continue to take those precautions, uh, especially in this northern northern Indian belt uh, of Delhi of uh, the Indo-Gangetic Plain. Of Rajasthan, of Madhya Pradesh, these are all extremely heat-prone zones. Uh, so we are expecting the heat to uh, continue to get back in a couple of uh, days. Polash Mukherjee, thank you so much for an update today from Delhi. Um, have a good Thursday and thank you for the information. It's a fascinating insight. I hope it cools down for you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much and have a great day. Well, this is a really interesting story because the myth itself is sort of one you might not think about that much, but a new analysis of more than 2,000 skeletons buried in England between the 5th and 11th centuries suggests the country's early medieval rulers weren't the carnivorous, carnivorous gluttons that we might think they are, at least not in popular lore. 
what most people have, what people in that area have been eating has been fodder for humor <laughs> for quite a while, particularly those in the not royal classes, including this segment of horrible histories called Historical MasterChef. Here is the Saxon contestant from that era. Five eager chefs, five historical eras, but just one prize. Who will be crowned historical master chef? I once ate a chocolate as big as my head. He did. Starving Saxon Edbert comes from a small village in Sussex and he's preparing some traditional peasant dishes. Fresh rolls. They look excellent. Oh! I think I cracked a tooth. These are rock hard, mate. Thing is, see, our crops aren't ready until August, so food's in very short supply. In fact, we've already ran out of flour, haven't we? Yeah. Watch. See, I've had to improvise with those using ground-up acorns, grasses, nettles and tree bark. Well, hopefully your main course is going to be more edible. That was the main course, he goes on to say. Uh, that's Historical MasterChef. It's comedic. And that was the Saxon contestant basically poking fun at the fact that they didn't have any meat, uh, that essentially they relied on a lot of what was grown on the land. And even that wasn't particularly plentiful. But the popular myth was that the ruling class or the royals in the in back then ate differently, that they were forever having big feasts full of mutton and mead and so forth. It turns out, though, that they too pretty much subsisted on cereal and vegetable-based diets with large meat-heavy feasts reserved only for special occasions. Well, joining me now is the person who helped figure this out. Sam Leggett is a bioarchaeologist at the University of Edinburgh and co-author of the study that was published in Anglo-Saxon England. Sam Leggett, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I guess, where does the myth come from? Well, I mean... We think it really comes from the high Middle Ages and, you know, the Tudor times, you know, people like Henry VIII sitting down to a really meaty meal and people just assuming that's what everyone's done for, you know, centuries. Um, that's kind of where we think everyone gets it from. So where did, what was the genesis of the idea to go out and see if this was actually true or not? Well, I was analysing bones from this period as part of my PhD um, and I was really interested in, in more sort of like change in diet over time and um, some slightly different questions. And it kind of all started when I gave a, a talk in progress sort of meeting um, where my co-author Tom was and he sort of went, that doesn't fit <laughs> with the historical yeah. documents. What's what's going on here? And so, um, yeah, these these papers then, then came about after, you know, sort of a couple of years of us sitting down and nutting it all out and, talking it through. So how did you go about trying to figure out what, in fact, uh, people from all social classes in Anglo-Saxon England were, in fact, eating on a regular basis? So what I tried to do was look at uh, skeletons myself and then from pub other published studies uh, that have a range of different grave goods. So in the time sort of before Christianity really takes hold, people were buried with stuff, um, with things they'd need for the afterlife. Um, and some people had a lot of really cool, very wealthy sort of type of items, gold with garnets, you know, precious gems. And some people had almost nothing or absolutely nothing in their graves. So what I tried to do was get a range of people with all of the lots of shinies to basically nothing and compared what they were eating um, over the course of the sort of data we've got give, gives us about 10 years worth of diet in their lifetimes. Um, so, yeah. What did you and what did you, you what did you find ultimately? 
I ultimately found that there was no difference between different social classes or, or genders with diet. The, the differences are more sort of chronological and sort of regional. You know, you've got different regional cuisines, but um, ultimately, no matter how lowly you were versus how rich you were, you're eating pretty much the same thing. Because we did have this idea, I suppose, that every day was feast day for for the for the royalty or for the for the elite, yep. and that every day was every day was a bad day uh, for everyone else. Uh, but I guess what you found is that mostly they were all in the same boat most days. Exactly, you know, food's really seasonal. Um, you know, this is a time before supermarkets, a time before you know, sort of getting to pick whatever you'd like to eat. It's just what you've got in your back garden, um, and what sort of around you to sort of forage. So um, if things were bad, it was bad for everybody. And if stuff was good, you shared it with the whole community um, at one of these sort of big feasts is like a celebration. Yeah. uh, uh, Tell me about the feasts, because I guess that's where a lot of the myth comes from, is from those feasts and the frequency of them or infrequency of them, really. Exactly. So we've got these documents from the period which (laughs) lay out really quite a lot of meat, um, you know, multiple um, cows and sheep and salmon and eels and butter and lots and lots of ale. Um, and it's always sort of been assumed that these were sort of food rent. So it's something that the royals would say, I want this. This is what I would like to eat. Um, give it to me, please. And that's how I'm going to, you know, stock my kitchen. Um, and everyone assumed that this is what they do and go around their whole kingdom and just sort of pick on <laughs> each sort of local lord and tell him that that's what they'd like to be served. Um, but what we found now is that maybe that wasn't that frequent. It was a very special <laughs> occasion. I suppose given the scarcity of stuff and the difficulty in both raising crops, the failure of those crops at times, the difficulty of, of raising animals, that really even those at the top of the pile, so to speak, couldn't really go around demanding everyone's stuff or everyone's food, really. Exactly. Like when you actually think about sort of exactly what you were saying, what that would actually mean, it, it does make sense. And that these animals were very precious and um, had a lot of other utility. You know, they would pull your plow, they could give you um, milk and um, wool and things like that. So um, if if times are really hard, you might sort of go to that as a, you know, um, a backup. But really, yeah, you wouldn't want to. They're, li- they're literal cash cows. So, you know, they're a big investment. So you want to sort of keep them around. Um, so, yeah. Were you, were you surprised by the findings? I mean, I guess at first it, it was counterintuitive. As an archaeologist, I wasn't as surprised because we sort of often we're more used to kind of dealing with um you know not the elites and so I was kind of expecting that most people would you know be relatively boring dietarily speaking um but what was more interesting and exciting is just that there was no one that stood out usually you just get a couple of people who look really really sort of interesting and special and the fact that no one did um it was was quite interesting and I think what was more exciting was sort of when Tom came in um, as a historian, I went, this just doesn't match up with any of the sort of historical records. Right. Um, this yeah. is Tom at, uh, at Cambridge, right? That your co-author. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what, what were they? I mean, how did you determine what they were and weren't eating archaeologically? Archaeologically. So um, what I do is I get bones from ancient skeletons and I analyze the chemicals in them. And that kind of is what sort of gives us um, an idea about what you're eating. Um, we can do this on, on modern people and people who are alive today. You can analyze your hair and get the same sort of results. Um, 
And what's quite interesting, it sort of tells you if people are eating things from a marine environment, so, you know, if they're eating a lot of seafood um, or if they're eating stuff that's more land-based and also how much sort of proportional protein they're eating. So are they looking very plant-based? Are they looking a bit more like an omnivore? People are eating a bit of both or are they looking a bit more like a carnivore and really meat-heavy? Um, so it's not a super specific technique, but it gives you an idea of roughly speaking how much protein and where that protein is coming from. And then you can compare that with the actual animals. And if somebody's looking isotopically, chemically, like a cow or a sheep, but you know it's a human, that means they're eating the same sort of stuff as those animals. And that's what we're finding here is a lot of these people are eating similar diets chemically. So plants like, like their livestock. Right. So, so essentially, they were, I mean, I, I saw this mentioned in different articles written about it, and essentially they were the original flexitarians, right? They <laughs> mo- <laughs> uh, mostly, exactly, mostly plants, yeah. some meat. Um, exactly. Yeah. What What did that What did that tell you? I mean, I, I guess really what it boils down to is that myths need to be tested, and that's what you do, right? You test these myths. Uh, what do you think the importance of the findings are? I think it debunks a lot of, like you say, those myths that we have about this, the past and particularly the early medieval past being this very meat heavy feasting society. Um, That just, that was a really special thing. It's like us having, you know, Christmas, um, a big, a big blowout meal with everybody. um, And we need to start thinking of the past as maybe not such a foreign place and that um, their food ways were very flexible, like you're saying, um, because the world was a bit uncertain and you had to be flexible in your diets to kind of deal with big famines um, and uncertainty of crops and things, you know. So that flexitarianism has, has a place with, with that type of environment. That we've always adapted, no matter the social class, always adapted somewhat to what was at hand. Right? That's, that's, exactly. it, is, it is fascinating. How about the reaction to it? I mean, it really has been covered everywhere. I saw an article in the New York Times. I saw an article in the Times of London, The Sun, which is a tabloid. Uh, what have you made yeah. of, of all the different pickups of this story and, and how everyone <laughs> has treated it? I mean, it's, it's been fantastic for everybody to have found that, that interesting and exciting. You always kind of hope that your research has that reach. Um, I mean, I think the whole uh, the kings were vegetarian is, um, is an interesting angle to take because we've got very specific ideas about what makes a vegetarian, right? And that usually comes with a whole ethos that I don't think we can put onto, um, you know, the early medieval period. They, they weren't thinking like modern vegetarians, but um, it definitely sort of shows you that meat hasn't always been as big a part of, um, you know, our, our sort of diet story. <laughs> But, yeah, I, yeah. I, I saw one headline that Alfred the Great had become Alfred the Green. <laughs> was, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> was, exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, what, what application do you think it has? And you've mentioned it, but what application do you think it has to modern times and just the idea of history in general? Yeah, I mean, I think it allows us to draw um, sort of more easy comparisons between us and sort of our ancestors. You know, if we can work out the types of things they're reading, how they're moving about the landscape, um, we can then sort of use that to think about um, our own food culture and maybe with climate change and things like that, how we can adapt and change and sort of show you that it's been done before. These people had a really, you know, robust society. And so that that's okay. You know, having that flexibility and that seasonality in your diet has, you know, served them just as well as it can, you know, hopefully serve us today. And there's lots of applications for forensics and other things as well. I was going to say perhaps also the importance of archaeology and history. 
Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I think what I do yes, um, is, you know, interesting. And I, I hope that, yeah, people can see the utility for this for, for lots of different stuff um, to overturn our myths, but to also, yeah, inform us about more recent events as well as, you know, 1500 years ago that we're talking about in these papers. What's next? What's next? Um, we really want to sort of tackle the childhood diet aspect as well. Have a look at, you know, I do have some of that data on what people are eating when they were kids versus adults. And um, you can use similar techniques to look at um, migration as well. So there's there's some big, big stuff coming out soon um, about who was local, who was a migrant in this in this time period as well. So watch this uh, space. Yeah, fascinating. Any, any <laughs> hypotheses on the childhood diet? Was it different from adults? Well, uh, some of it was, yeah. Right. So um, basically what some of it's tied to is um, if someone has maybe moved and migrated to a place, so there seems to be very different childhood diets. And then suddenly when you're in England, in these communities, and you're starting to farm alongside everybody else, your diet gets more and more similar and sort of acculturated is kind of the term we use. You become part of that community. So it's telling me a really nice story about people coming together, eating together, um, and having had a different diet from living somewhere else. Um, yeah. Sam Leggett, I look forward to seeing uh, the next chapter in this in this uh, story about uh, a, a history that maybe we had misinterpreted for quite a long time. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much. I don't know if you've been following this story, but an unusually early and really brutal heat wave has been scorching parts of India of late. Uh, blisteringly high temperatures swept over parts of the country. Authorities have closed schools. There's been fires at landfills that I saw online. Um, and crops, of course, are in trouble as a cool spring turned into something very different. India recorded its hottest March since 1901. And average temperatures in April in northern and central pockets of the country were the highest in 122 years. The Indian Meteorological Department said temperatures reached 45 Celsius in 10 cities last week. Here's a news report from India about this. India is hit by a summer of misery. The temperatures have reached the 40 degrees Celsius mark in several cities. UP's Banda recorded the maximum temperature in the country. On Friday, it stood at 47.4 degrees Celsius. The national capital recorded its second hottest April in 72 years with a monthly average maximum temperature of 40.2 degrees. And amid the blistering heat wave warning, several states are facing acute shortage of coal. So you can get the impression there just of how serious it is and just how hot it is. Joining me now is Polash Mukherjee. He's the lead air pollution and climate resilience, uh, as well as a air quality and climate resilience consultant with the Natural Resources Defense Council India. Polash, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Um, I'm happy to be here. Um, just a little bit about just how hot it's been and what it's like right now in Delhi. I understand it's cooled down a bit, but I was looking at the temperatures. It looks like it's going to be warm and sunny for the rest of the week. And, and, and your dog agrees. Yes. I'm so sorry about that. No, uh, not at yes, all. Not has, at all. Yes, it has been an unusually hot summer. Uh, what, what makes it specifically unusual is that the heat wave has set in earlier than uh, usual. Uh, usually May is May and June are the hottest months of the year, uh, and this year we've had a very extremely hot uh, April, like you hear, like you heard uh, from uh, the radio news that uh, it has been the hottest summer in 122 years, and that's since uh, since India started keeping uh, meteorological records. Uh, right. What's unusually dangerous about early heat waves is that 
the level of preparedness is uh, lower than than it is in the month of may uh, this means that more people are caught off guard um, many people don't have uh, haven't taken the usual precautions again, uh, to pro- to to safeguard themselves against the the health impacts of exposure to extreme heat uh, we see this in cities and, and towns across the country uh, and every year the number of heat waves Uh, as defined by uh, the indian government uh, the number of incidents are seem to be just going up uh, year on year mm-hmm. uh, what's it been like just just as a person living in delhi when it gets that hot that early in the year uh, what's it like just to get around and and do your day to day stuff it's it's really tough uh, especially if you if you depend on the public public transport uh, to get around uh or especially if you don't have means to uh to private uh, private vehicles uh if you don't have access to 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 these forms uh it becomes even more tough uh there are uh, there are several vulnerable uh groups that uh, specifically have it harder than usual uh although uh in my case i i am happy that uh, thanks to the thanks to the pandemic i continue to work from home and therefore i only need to step out for uh, for essential uh, uh, essential purchases uh, but uh, it it remains very hot uh, the usage of air conditioning and the usage of uh, electricity for cooling uh, has shot through the roof uh, it, it it remains very uncomfortable especially in the afternoon hours uh, mm-hmm. uh, post post lunch post uh, post noon is when right. it becomes extremely hot Uh, and uh, it 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 just becomes very hard to uh, to function normally and this is spread out right across i mean there's this has been quite widespread i know it's happening and the same heat wave has hit uh, if you look at a weather map of india it's almost all red uh these days at least it was and, and it's stretched into pakistan as well so this has really been been a national issue not just a uh, it's not been isolated um what kind of impact does that have in broader terms on things like crops and and so forth well in terms of uh, its impact on agriculture i think uh, a lot of uh, uh, crops this is spring as you know is is the uh, uh, is the fruit fruiting period for uh, and the flowering period for a lot of crops so this affects yields uh, uh, tremendously uh, unfortunately uh there hasn't been uh, much research focused research on the long term impacts of heat uh, on crops but in the immediate term we do see that uh, a lot of farmers have uh, have received low, uh, started receiving low yields uh it becomes harder to perform the outdoor agricultural activities that are involved with uh, farming in india uh, unfortunately uh, uh, there are uh, a lot of the farmers in india are still small scale farmers who depend on uh, on physical labor uh, for uh, their individual farm they have small land hold smaller land holding compared to farmers in the west uh, and they have lower levels of penetration for uh, agricultural implements so for instance uh, the harvesting of the crop is uh, sometimes done by hand by by, uh, by an army by, by a team of laborers as opposed to doing it uh, via a harvester so these are all activities that uh, expose uh, vulnerable individuals and groups uh, to higher temperatures and uh, they can lead to uh, higher heat related illnesses right um 
what other, I mean, you were mentioning it earlier just about how it's been difficult on, on different groups. Uh, but what have people been trying to do to beat the heat? Um, because I've been seeing lots of public service messages from the government saying, make sure to give delivery people water and so on and so forth. Uh, there must be an awareness, but clearly it has a huge impact uh, on a lot of people when it hits this early in the year. It does, it does. Uh, so I, the main part here is to try and raise awareness about uh, about the impacts of exposure to extreme heat, uh, to, to recognize and to identify the early symptoms of heat stress, uh, of heat stroke, uh, which can, and then therefore to safeguard yourself against uh, the most severe impacts. Uh, people uh, have been advised to stay indoors wherever they can, uh, to avoid exposure to extreme heat, uh, to reduce intense physical activity, especially in the peak heat hours of the afternoon. Uh, there are uh, so these heat action plans, uh, which are put in place by, by city governments as well as by regional governments uh, across, uh, across the country. Many of these plans uh, have targeted actions towards some of these vulnerable groups. Uh, while individuals exposed out, uh, outdoors as part of their uh, as part of their occupation, uh, continue to be affected. One other big vulnerable group uh, are individuals who reside in low-income neighborhoods uh, who don't have access to uh, properly insulated houses and therefore uh, are exposed to higher indoor temperatures. And these include uh, more vulnerable sections of the population, uh, el the elderly, uh, children, uh, women who often have to uh, fetch water uh, in the heat. Uh, so these are all individuals uh, who are specially vulnerable and don't have uh, access, uh, have easy access to uh, the required healthcare. Uh, so the government is looking at, uh, many governments are, I wouldn't say it's universal, but some, gov some city governments and uh, state governments are looking at targeted action towards these groups. Because this is, as you, as part of your work, I understand, this is really what we're seeing is these heat waves, not only is this year a bit of a warning sign, uh, we had a heat wave last summer in BC, here where I am, that we considered a bit of a warning sign about climate change. But this these heat waves are becoming, this early heat wave certainly sends some warning signals, I would think. Yes, definitely. And in fact, if you look at the heat wave patterns this year, it's not just uh, the fact that they've, they've been here earlier. It's also for the geographic spread, like you said. Many of uh, uh, many of India's hill states that have uh, traditionally been cooler around this time of the year are, have also been exposed to heat waves this year. Uh, the states of Jammu and Kashmir, the states of Himachal Pradesh, uh, which uh, usually uh, which are hill states and therefore uh, have uh, lower temperatures, also have to what is normal for them around this time of the year. Similarly, uh, there, are, uh, there are coastal states that are close to the, close to the ocean that have higher degree of humidity. Uh, as we know, humidity and heat is a deadly combination. Uh, so these coastal cities are especially vulnerable to higher heat. Uh, we have not just been, uh, we've been noticing this for the past couple of years and the number of heat waves have been de definitely been increasing. And as a consequence of this, what is happening is we are kind of getting into the loop of uh, of, uh, of climate change uh, because right. uh, more and more people are now installing air conditioners, uh, are using more electricity, which in India continues to be uh, mostly uh, generated from burning coal. 
and therefore sets into action the entire cycle. I'm speaking with Polash Mukherjee. He's the lead air pollution and climate resilience, as well as a air quality and climate resilience consultant with Natural Resources Defense Council uh, in India. We've been talking about this incredible heat wave that hit India hard and early this year. Uh, huge po- pockets of the country, well into Pakistan, as Polash was mentioning. It uh, it it is also hit hill areas. It's been particularly hot and humid in coastal areas. No one has really been able to escape this heat uh, that came early this year. It's had a widespread impact. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about what can be done to try to mitigate uh, some of these impacts that India is seeing. It is the country most vulnerable, one of them, uh, to increasing temperatures. In fact, some areas of the country may in fact become unlivable over time because the heat will be so intense. And we'll talk about that after this. Well, it's Wednesday night here, Thursday morning in Delhi. That's where Polash Mukherjee is. He's the lead uh, air pollution and climate resilience at the national, um, one second, at the, uh, sorry, lead uh, air pollution and climate resilience at the National Resources Defense Council in India. Uh, We've been talking about this heat wave that hit the country uh, in April with the hottest April's on record, uh, not right across the country, into Pakistan as well, and just what kind of impact that's having. Uh, I gather one of the big, and you mentioned this right before the break, Polash, was this idea of energy consumption, because India still gets 70% of its energy uh, mix from coal. And as you mentioned, that's something that probably needs to change at some point in the not-too-distant future, with demand expected to increase so much, and the heat uh, also expected to increase. Yeah, that's, that's right, Ben. I mean, uh, India is uh, cleaning up its uh, its energy sources gradually, uh, but as of right now, we remain dependent on coal. Uh, what we are what we are seeing with the early onset of heat this year is that uh, India's peak electricity consumption, which is increasing every year, uh, is has come in earlier. Uh, last year, the peak was in the month of June, uh, late June, in fact, and this year we've already hit the peak in the middle of April. So what this means is more and more people are accessing uh, means of space cooling, uh, means of artificial cooling, uh, which is which you utilize a lot more uh, electricity, uh, like air conditioning, what, air conditioning, and so forth. Right, of course. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, is there an opportunity here? I mean, how? Given that we think this is a trend that is going to continue, that we're going to see earlier, hotter springs, uh, even hotter summers. Uh, what can be done to try to mitigate some of the impacts that we're seeing? There's a big opportunity here in terms of uh, in terms of building out uh, uh, resilience uh, against extreme heat, uh, not just through uh, active heat management, but also through passive heat management, uh, which is right. what we're seeing through measures like uh, uh, increased building efficiency, increased uh, thermal efficiency in buildings. Uh, we are noticing now that uh, we do know for a fact that India is rapidly growing. Uh, in fact, in terms of urbanization, uh, in, in the last census, in, India had an urban population of just about 35%, which is slated to increase to about 60% in the next two decades. Uh, this means that uh, close to half or, half or more of uh, the buildings that will exist in 2060 are yet to be built. So that right there is a big opportunity. Uh, there is the opportunity to, for us to build our, uh, our buildings better, uh, to have more, have more thermal efficiency inbuilt into them, uh, to have better, th- better uh, energy efficiency inbuilt into them, to the new air conditions, 
and the uh, appliances that we do install, uh, if we are able to ensure that they are more uh, efficient uh, and they they operate they operate uh, better using less electricity, that is an opportunity going forward. Uh, there are also uh, big passive uh, passive cooling options that uh, we do advocate with the government with uh, low income neighborhoods, especially especially for the vulnerable. Uh, we do install something called cool roofs. Uh, now, cool right. roofs are a very low cost and uh, effective solution, I would say, uh, especially for the low-income neighborhoods that I was referring to. Uh, these are essentially right. a layer of paint, uh, or they could be an additional layer of uh, of material on the roof that will increase the reflectivity of the roof and therefore ensure that uh, much more of the sunlight gets reflected back rather than absorbed by the building. It has been seen uh, that uh, cool roofs can reduce indoor temperatures by as much as four to five degrees Celsius and therefore make a big difference. Polash, I mean, I, I get the impression, I think we, we all know this, that in countries like India, you're preparing now to live with temperatures that we didn't think we might ever see, I mean, and consistent temperatures in the mid-40s. And that's extremely warm. I remember watching something last year about life at 60 living under 60 or 50 or 60 degree temperatures. Is that a reality now, do you think, um, for, for many parts of the country? Uh, well, I, I'd say 60 is uh, far away. And well, I 60, hope is, never... 60 is way too high, but 50 perhaps. Yeah. 50 perhaps. Yes, I, I, I do hope that we, do, we don't have to see such high temperatures. But unfortunately, the reality is that uh, it's already good. I mean, these high temperatures are here now. And we have to safeguard ourselves against uh, such high temperatures right now. Uh, while efforts continue to, you know, to, to reverse the impacts of climate change, uh, we see that countries like India uh, have been are beginning to be and have been affected by the impacts of climate change in the last couple of years. And heat waves is just one example of, of the same, right? In the last couple of years, we've seen uh, added uh, cyclones. Uh, we have seen shifting of rainfall patterns. Uh, we have seen more severe cold cold spells. So these are all related to changes in the weather patterns that are uh, impacted by climate change. Uh, so while it is important to do, to have the mitigation activities to to reduce uh, the long term impacts of climate change, uh, at NRDC we are also working with uh, communities to build up their resilience uh, to help them deal with. Uh, with, with, with something that's being becoming very real all around them, the impacts of climate change. So, what do, what do the next what do the next few weeks what do the next few weeks look like now? How warm is it today, and, and how is it going to be for the rest of the week? Has there been any sort of reprieve from that high heat of uh, of late April? So, where I am in Delhi, uh, very fortunately, and it was almost like a, a like a celebration yesterday. We had uh, the first spell of rainfall uh, for the season. Uh, which kind of uh, reduced temperatures, uh, which was a much needed relief. Uh, so today uh, it is likely to go up to 37 degrees Celsius. Uh, but in the coming weeks, uh, the heat is expected to come back. We do know that the months of May and June are the worst in terms of uh, heat. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so it is important to continue to take those precautions. Uh, especially in this northern northern Indian belt uh, of Delhi, of uh, the Indo-Gangetic Plain, of Rajasthan, of Madhya Pradesh, these are all extremely heat-prone zones. Uh, so 
we are expecting the heat to uh, continue to get back in a couple of uh, days. Polash Mukherjee, thank you so much for an update today from Delhi. Um, have a good Thursday and thank you for the information. It's a fascinating insight. I hope it cools down for you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much and have a great day.